Well, we are back in Revelation here tonight. So uh, chapter 10, we have not quite finished that yet, so we're going to go back and finish chapter 10. We're going to get into chapter 11. Chapter 11 is one of my favorite chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, Really, it was one of those things that got me interested in the book to begin with and kind of showed me that why wasn't I taught this in the church? I mean, it seems so plain, it seems so obvious, it seems so important, and yet it was ignored. And uh, we'll get to that when we get to that chapter. But for now, chapter 10, verse 8 is where we're going to start. It says, now, I'll give you a little background to remember here. If you look back those first seven verses, we saw an angel coming, putting his foot on the land and the sea. He has an open book in his hand, which I think seems to be the seals, at least from Scripture. It doesn't call it the seals or the scroll, but he has this open scroll that is we saw earlier in the same book of Revelation being handed to him, then it's unrolled, and now we see this scroll open. It stands to reason that's probably what it is. And you'll see as we continue what happens with it that it seems to fit as well in context. So it says in verse 8, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So what we see here is that this little scroll that has been opened, or this book, and I was just came to me now, I should have looked in the Greek to see if that's the same word, book and scroll. If somebody wants to do that, they sure can. Uh, but books weren't, you know, really what was used back at that time. Scrolls were. So that's kind of what makes me curious about that. But when he eats it, it's, it tastes sweet like honey, but it turns his stomach bitter. Now, this, the person giving it to him, to John, it's the same voice that he had heard earlier that had thundered. And now he's speaking to John. Before I heard a voice thundering, now this voice is speaking to him. Kind of more of a tender thought. Now, we know what was on the seals because we saw the six seal judgments there in Revelation 6. And what was on it were judgments, wrath of, you know, uh, I guess being revealed, whether some of it from man, it seemed, like the first one was the Antichrist, or at least the white horse, and then you had the red horse, and the black horse, and the pale horse, and then you had a scene in heaven of persecuted Christians, and then you had the sun and moon being darkened. And so that was the progression that we saw of those seals. Yeah. Same word. Okay, yeah. But it is the same. Same. So when you think of this, think of more of a scroll than a book. So, thank you. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting is it's reminiscent of something in the Old Testament that we often, you know, forget about, and. I, the older I get, the more I'm learning this, and the more I think it's important. When we read something in the New Testament, you should always be looking at, where is this in the Old? Because, like I said, we've grown up with this Old and New Testament idea. There's an Old Covenant, and there's a New Covenant. The Old is obsolete. Well, that's not what it is anymore. The Old Testament was the New Testament simply concealed. In the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So I can't help but go back to Numbers 5 and remember that if there was someone who was caught in idolatry or adultery, unfaithfulness, they were supposed to mix this dust from the temple, the word Yahweh on a parchment that was put in that water, mixed up and she had to drink it. If she was guilty, it was going to turn her stomach sour. 
and she was going to waste away. If she was not guilty, there was no harm. There was no curse on her. The curse only came upon the guilty. I think that that stands to reason the same type of thing with the seal judgments as well. That it's sweet for those that are innocent, but it's bitter for those who are guilty of adultery. Anytime that we are unfaithful to God, that's adultery. And so it is very fitting. We see in Jeremiah 15, verse 16, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. The word of God should be sweet to us. No matter what it is, you know, whether it be the book of Revelation, which some people, oh, I don't want to think about those things. No, it should be sweet to you. It's supposed to be. The law of God, which is part of the word of God, it should be sweet to you. We should delight in the law of God, not use it for condemnation and uh, beating ourselves up or whatever. It, it, the law is not bad. It's what we've done to the law. It was in our flesh that made that weak. We read here as well in Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11, the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious, precious than gold, than more, much more than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So the word of God not only warns, but also rewards here as well. And it is compared to being as sweet as honey. So these are just some examples that we can see that I think what's on this scroll, at the very minimum, you can say is God's word. And when he eats it, he is supposed to, as you're going to see, go out and share that with other. He's supposed to internalize it, not keep it to himself, but go out with it. And that's what we're supposed to do with the word too. Unfortunately, we only like to give the sweet parts. Too often we want to just say, hey, Jesus is love. He loves you. No, it's fine. Just keep living your sinful life. It's all right. He has forgiven you. And we don't want to give the word of warning along with the reward. And John clearly isn't going to just give the reward message. Ezekiel was told this as well. This isn't the only place we see this. He says, open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. In Ezekiel, we see almost the exact same thing happening. And the goal or purpose of it was so that you would take the message of the scroll to the house of Israel. Now, this is happening in Ezekiel here in chapter 2, just before he's lifted up to heaven where he gets to see the throne of God. In Revelation, this is happening just before the Lord is going to be coming back. And you're going to see the heavenly Jerusalem coming out of heaven and so on. So if these events are the same, maybe that gives you a little better understanding of what John is doing here and why he is told to eat this scroll. That he is meant to go warn and give the message now you think, well, it's already been, I mean, he's, he's got the, the seals, or it's, it's open. It's already been done. What is there to warn of? Well, remember, there were three woes of the trumpets, and we are in our commercial break. Of the seven trumpets, we have seen six of them. There is still one woe to come. And that is the seventh trumpet that comes after our commercial break. Remember, between the sixth and the seventh, there was always a commercial break. Chapter 10, in the first part of chapter 11, is our commercial break before we get to the seventh trumpet. 
And let me tell you, when that seventh trumpet blows, it is going to be sweet and bitter. So timing-wise, I would say this is just like what Ezekiel, just before he was taken to heaven, that's what you're going to see here with the seventh trumpet. That's it. And then it's just, it's judgment day. So anyway, the words here in Ezekiel are words of lament and woe. Certainly, at least what we saw on those seals was lamenting, woe. It was hard stuff. And I think just like in Ezekiel, he is supposed to go and preach. That's what John is supposed to do. But notice who Ezekiel was told to preach to. The house of Israel. Now, looking back at what we've learned throughout the last year, who's the house of Israel? Typically, it's the ten tribes, yeah, that are typically known as Gentiles today. You had Judah and Israel. I don't think it's an accident that here in uh, Ezekiel, it's specified to the house of Israel, not to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. It almost gives you a Gentile feel. Okay? Now, as we go on into Revelation, look what it says. And I took the little scroll out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So, same exact thing that happens with Ezekiel. Even the same people, it seems. Do you guys remember where we saw this word peoples, nations, tongues, and kings before? Chapter 7. And in chapter 7, I think that's where it is, chapter 7 you saw the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. And then immediately after the 12 from each tribe of Israel, the Jews, then you see it says... And then he saw among them people from all tribes, languages, tongues, nations. The same division in chapter 7 where we were talking about it seems like they're Jews and then it seems like it's like everybody but Gentiles in there. And here is where we're seeing that word again, which may line up with Ezekiel saying, go to the house of Israel. Don't know, but it's just kind of what stuck out in my mind there. But he is supposed to prophesy. Uh, notice he's not told to prophesy against Israel, but about, which is an interesting word there, about many people, nations, languages, and kings. So, you know, what that means, I'm not sure. In Ezekiel here, it just says, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. So it doesn't say against, it doesn't say about, but here we see it saying about many peoples. So maybe that's just the difference of the Greek too, I don't know. But anyway, part of this message then, we are going to see, because the, the most that I can see is that we're in chronological order here. I cannot not see so far what we're reading in, in Revelation to be chronological. So it would stand to reason then that after this, John is supposed to go preach a message. Or, you know, this message is supposed to be given at this time. Before we look at that, though, in chapter 11, let's look at Job 20, verses 12 through 15. It says, Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue, though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth, Yet his food in his stomach turns sour. It becomes a cobra venom within him. This is all speaking about the ungodly. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. So evil is sweet to the ungodly, but it's going to turn bitter in your stomach as well. I think when we talk about communion, when we took communion here, we've talked about it before, but it says in, in the Corinthians there, it says that if you eat and drink or take communion without recognizing the body of Christ, you will eat and drink to your own damnation. I've said communion is for his children only. 
And that's why, you know, I grew up in a church where they practiced that you couldn't just be somebody off of the street that came and took communion because they didn't know what you believed. You might have a stranger come in, an ungodly person, and, you know, they're seeing it, well, I, I'm just going along with the flow, doing what everybody else does, right? And so they'll go take communion, and they say, this is a serious matter. And I kind of respect that view. Um, they would take it so far as that you had to be of that denomination to take communion then and be, I don't agree with that. But I do agree with the idea that, listen, you, an ungodly person or even children, I think children who do not really, they're not aware of what's going on, should not be taking communion because of that very same thing. This is a serious thing. This isn't just, you know, hey, let's, uh, you know, grab a pop and, you know, milk and cookies, whatever. This is serious. There's something about it. And I think it's, you know, something to apply to our life out of this as well, even though that's not the context of this here in Revelation. So anyway, let's get now into chapter 11. It's a short commercial break there in chapter 10, continuing for a short bit in chapter 11. Now, um, chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, is continuing to be part of our commercial break, our interlude, our break between the 6th and the 7th. Now, this section may or may not fit into our chronological timeline because it covers a, a stretched out period of time, possibly. Possibly. It might fit into the chronological thing as well. I don't know, but I'm going to show you some things that I find fascinating in reference to what we've talked about before. When is this seven-year period? We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I don't know, as I've said before, whether the seven-year spans the seals and the trumpets, just one of those, part of both of those, but if this is all in chronological order, it might be interesting to think that maybe that seven-year period is going to take place after the sixth trumpet. Now, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this. This is just me trying to put things together with what we see in the... But chronologically, that's what we've done. Be What's that? Okay. <laughs> There is no mention of three and a half years so far, but we're about to get into it. We don't see any mention of the three and a half years in the seals or in the trumpets, but we're about to have it mentioned now. Okay? So it's hard to know when it is, but as we continue, it might make a little more sense. It's been several weeks ago, but I thought we read something about 1,000 Two hundred and sixty, yeah, one thousand two hundred and sixty days. That's three and a half years. Yep, yep. But was that out of Daniel, or was that? In, That's going to be in Revelation. In Daniel, it talks about times, times, and half a time. Right. Then there's also going to be forty-two months that we'll see. So it's it's going to be mentioned in three different ways, which is interesting in itself. Why those three different ways? So it's possible that there are three separate periods too. But the way it's worded, it, it just it makes the muddy the, the waters even more muddy, but you'll see. Now, going back to our chiastic thing, I just want you to see this as well, and this kind of goes along with what you're asking. Remember the chiastic structure, A, B, C, C, B, A. Here we see in chapter 11, verses 2 through 42, that we're going to see, or chapter 11, verse 2, you see the 42 months is going to be mentioned. Well, that's also going to be mentioned in Revelation 13, verse 5. Then you continue on, on theme 2, you're going to see the 1,260 days in verse 3, but it's also in chapter 12, verse 6, and then you see three and a half days mentioned in verse 9 and verse 11. So it's kind of sandwiched in there. We're about to see these two witnesses, and these two witnesses are what got me interested, as I said before, in the book of Revelation. What made me realize, wow, I have not been taught things that are right there in Scripture. Why not? 
Before we get into the two witnesses, I'm going to say, why two witnesses? Well, Deuteronomy, I think, answers that. It says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. That is a general rule that you will see all throughout Scripture on the testimony of two or three. So we have Jesus. There was a reason that he reasoned with the disciples about himself from the law and the prophets. Not just one, but like I said, you're going to see that rule all throughout Scripture. At least two. But these two witnesses, it's very very important to have more than just one. That was a Levitical law. Jesus followed it. Um, even with the woman who was being stoned, or you know, they wanted her to be stoned, he, he had to have two or three witnesses. Couldn't even find one to step up against her. So let's get into this in verse 1. Then, now keep in mind the context, John just ate this scroll. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. So, remember, from our tabernacle, there was a reason I wanted to teach that at Tabernacles, is I wanted you to get that picture fresh in your head. You've got the most holy place, the holy place, and the outer court. Now, here we see the outer court area is for the Gentiles. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, is this a good thing these Gentiles are doing in the outer court? No. It's a bad thing. And... Kind of like what we said in the tabernacle presentation, you've got, you know, you can come there physically. You can go to church physically. I think there's a lot of people in church today that are there physically only. Filling their time, fire insurance, hoping they don't burn in hell. You know, that they'll be able to say, well, yeah, I went to church. But you need to, the presence of God. They weren't in prayer. They weren't in communion. They weren't in the word of God. They, they, they weren't in relationship with him. But we'll go on and come back. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's three and a half years. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So, 42 months for the Gentiles, 1,260 days, which seems to be the exact same period, for the two witnesses. The 1,260 days, keep in mind a Jewish month was basically 30 days. And so if you take the 30 days times the six months uh, and, you know, 36, you, you get the same, same amount. 1,260 days is three and one half years or 42 months. Okay. Well, going back to Ezekiel, Further on through the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 40, he says, He took me there, and I saw, this is the, the Jerusalem, the, the temple, the new temple. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears. Pay attention to everything I'm going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. So Ezekiel is going to be taken into this temple, and you know what he sees? Ungodliness taking place. So we also see a man given a linen and a measuring rod, or coming in linen with a measuring rod. Here we see he's given a reed like a measuring rod in Revelation. He's taken to the temple. He's supposed to measure the temple of God. That's what we see in Ezekiel 40. Same kind of thing's happening. Now, one thing that's of note, the word temple here in the Greek is naos, or naos, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, N-A-O-S. And it does not mean temple. It literally is sanctuary. 
There are more quotes in the book of Revelation from the Old Testament than all of the New Testament, rest of the New Testament combined. So again, I think that there's a reason. I mean, if you want to understand Revelation, you better not say, oh, that Old Testament is obsolete. No wonder people can't understand it today, right? Because they've had this idea that the Old Testament is done. But the outer court was this place where the Gentiles, as I said, would go. And that is what we're seeing being measured. Ezekiel's vision, we see the angels measuring the outer court in verses 17 through 20 of that same chapter in Ezekiel 40. I didn't put it up here, but the same thing happening. And so here John, though, is told to exclude the area reserved for the Gentiles. Ezekiel measures it. John is told not to. Measure everything else. I don't know if that's because here it seems that they're supposed to tread upon the holy city or what the reason is, but I just want to point out that there is a difference, a distinction that's made here. The futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation is basically going to say this is not a real temple uh, that John is supposed to measure. It's just symbolic of the Jews within Israel who, who have accepted Christ as their Messiah, and this is going to happen you know, at the end of history. So really when he's measuring the temple, we're not talking about feet and inches or cubits, but we're talking about the measuring the, the numbers of the people of, of Jews that are saved. Okay? I don't think you'd have to have a futurist view to accept that as a symbolic possibility. I just don't see it saying that. This is clearly a measuring, and he even is given a measuring rod. Um, so to say that is simply to interject our ideas and views into the scriptures. We call that eisegesis, rather than simply taking out of scripture what it says. And we uh, in Christianity have done a great job of learning eisegesis where we interject our thoughts and ideas into the scripture to make it say what our beliefs are, what we want them to be, or whatever. So I prefer to take just a purely exegetical approach and say, it doesn't say that. It says he's supposed to measure it. I'm going to take it at face value. So um, in the mid-160s B.C., about 164 B.C., we had a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek that came into Jerusalem and set up a statue of himself in the temple of God. And it's basically what you can read about in the book of Maccabees. It's about what we talk about at around the time of Hanukkah. Um, Hanukkah, I think, has been one of the greatest blessings for my kids. I would have to ask them. I know what he's thinking. Yeah, it scared the living daylights out of me, but I think that was a blessing of it. Uh, would you agree, Josiah? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> okay. Obviously not now, but maybe as a younger kid, sure. Yeah. It was the fear of God. Yeah, and I think it was always good, but I wanted them to know, listen, if this happens, you need to recognize it, and you need to see how God stood up and fought for his people. And so what went on at that time is a spitting image of end times. I believe it is a, uh, a type of end times. And even the Jews would see that. So Antiochus Epiphanes did exactly everything the Antichrist is supposed to do. Sets up an abomination that causes desolation on the corner of the temple. Changes set times and seasons. Forbids them to keep the Sabbath. Forbids them to sacrifice. Forbids them to do all of the law. Forces them to eat unclean food. All of these types of things. Well, what's interesting about that is the reign of his terror was three and a half years. We have a seven-year period, and it is typically explained that the first half of that seven-year period is going to be okay. The second half is going to be hell on earth. We get that from Daniel 7, which basically says that 
this Antichrist is going to make a covenant with the Jews, and in the midst of the covenant, he's going to turn on them. Well, that's exactly what we see happening with Antiochus. When Antiochus came in for the first half, it was actually pretty good. He stopped uh, taxes for them. He let them do all these things. And then there was this little rebellion that took place or something. And so he, he just did a complete 180. And there was this three and a half years of bad persecution, killing them if they wouldn't you know, do this or didn't do that or whatever. And so it is a picture. Again, it doesn't tell us when that is, but I think that it is a picture and important to understand when we talk about this. Um, John is going to record these two witnesses, and they prophesy for three and a half years. When they're done prophesying, you're going to see shortly, they're going to be killed, lay in the streets, and you're going to see that everybody follows this like Antichrist figure because he had power to kill these two witnesses. We'll be getting to that. What I find interesting is that That means if these guys are prophesying, prophesying for three and a half years, and this is the first time we're seeing three and a half years mentioned in Scripture, why don't we, just exegetically speaking, attach the three and a half year period beginning now? When these witnesses begin to prophesy, that's got to be the beginning of the seven-year period, it seems. Now, the question is, Is this all chronological and it begins here after the sixth trumpet? Or is this commercial break summing up things that are taking place somewhere within the seals or within the trumpet somewhere else? I just haven't seen anything so far in the book of Revelation to say that we are out of chronological order. Outside of maybe the fact that these are commercial breaks in between them that could be saying, oh, this is happening, you know, rewind. I, I don't know. But nonetheless, this is, at least exegetically speaking, a huge mile marker for the seven-year period. At the beginning of the two witnesses that they will prophesy for this time. Now, at the same time, it seems, the Gentiles are going to be treading the holy city underfoot. Where are these guys going to be prophesying? In Jerusalem, you're going to see. Maybe because they're doing evil. I can tell you this, as we've talked about before, those of you who have gone to Israel with us, Jerusalem is being trampled on by Gentiles to this very day. It is an ungodly city. We have, the, you know, even the Muslim quarters of the old city. Uh, there is ungodliness everywhere in Israel, uh, specifically Jerusalem. Ezekiel 40, verses 3 and 4, says, He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with linen cord. I, we read this already, but... Uh, said, Son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, pay attention to everything I am going to show you, for that's what you have been brought here. Tell the house of Israel everything you see. Tell them. That's the same message, John. It's like, you need to once again go prophesy to these many nations, people. Tell them what you see. Is that for our benefit? Or is that, you know, because John isn't alive at this time period. So, Is that more for our benefit? Tell them what you see so that these people for the next 2,000 years are going to know what's going to happen. Got to have to look at it that way as well. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 and 5. He saw a similar thing. He says, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, Where are you going? He answered me, To measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. 
doesn't sound like to find out how many godly men or ungodly people are there. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So here what we're seeing is this guy supposed to go measure it. And he said, go tell that young man it's going to be without walls. He says, I'm going to, God is going to be a wall of fire around it. So what we're getting is, is a picture of people being brought to Jerusalem that are protected by God. Doesn't have walls because of the great number of livestock and people in it. Those seem to be good people, protected by a wall of fire. We have been talking about the possibility of this whole idea of the rapture is being taken to Jerusalem and God becomes a hoopah over us. What I see here is a place of protection for any godly people in Jerusalem. I don't see that Jerusalem was only for the Jew or only for the Gentile, but that this is anybody who is God's chosen, you know, welcomed in. And so I, I'm going to say probably not is the way I would view that. But I find this passage interesting in the fact that, you know, it, it's being measured uh, we're going to see re- later on in Revelation as well the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven, and it, it's been measured. It's a perfect cube, all of those kind of things. Is this to prepare a place of protection for the people? I, you know, like I'm measuring to see, maybe you could even say how many godly people can fit in this place. I, I don't know. I just... I can't make sense of what Zechariah is, why is he saying to measure this? Because clearly God knows there's something there that I just haven't been able to make sense of. But it does seem to say, hey, go run, tell that guy. It's almost like you don't need to do that because it's going to be huge and I'm going to be the wall. Well, moving back to treading on this holy city for 42 months, the Gentiles doing that. Look what it says in Luke 21. Again, this isn't new. In Luke 21, Jesus himself said, They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, we've talked about before, those who believe that, the preterists they're called, who believe that the book of Revelation was all fulfilled by 70 A.D., they saw Titus coming into Jerusalem as this being fulfilled. The Romans came in, trampled on the city of Jerusalem. But the problem is, what about until the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled? The other problem is, I don't think Revelation was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. I believe it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. And you could have said the same thing about Antiochus Epiphanes, because he did the exact same thing that Titus did. And then after Titus in 70 AD, around 135 AD, the same thing happened again. So why not 135 fulfilling that? I think these are all types or examples. So I think you can take and I think it's important for you to know the history of the sacking of Jerusalem because I think that's a a blueprint of what will happen in end times. Something very similar. So this is what Jesus said in Luke. I think he's referring to Revelation here, not 70 A.D., or both, maybe you could say. In Revela- the view, who are the two witnesses? Um, I have read that, and I can't, it's so lame. Um, I'm going to have to look again, but it would be, most of them don't even answer it. In all the things I read, I only found one book that explained who those two witnesses were. And I can't remember 
I feel like they're just regular human beings that we would know of through history. And as you're going to see, it makes no sense because all they do is they're looking for two people who could be warning. And that's all they do. They're going to ignore the fact that they rise to life, that uh, you know, people send gifts because all the other details that are given are not explained. So to me, that's one of the number of reasons, but one very strong reason why I cannot accept preterism because there are not answers to all of these things. But, well, let me read uh, Revelation 12, 6 as well, as long as we're kind of on this same before I leave that. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. The woman is going to be the church here where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. This is going to be in chapter 12. After we get done with these two witnesses, we're going to see that same time period mentioned again. And we see that it is a period where the church is protected for 1,260 days. What were we just reading in Zechariah and the measuring rod? It seemed that, hey, don't measure. We're going to be here. I'm going to be a wall of fire. The thing that doesn't make sense to me about that is they fled into the desert. Zechariah is talking about Jerusalem. So I think that's a hole in that theory. But it seems to have the same general theme. So, like I said, I'm just trying to give you some things to think about. Um, Revelation 12 continues in verse 14. The woman... The church was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. So now it's mentioned differently, but the same amount of time in regards to the same context, which would lead me to believe probably not different time periods. I, I believe that these are all the same time periods I just don't understand why for sure that they're mentioned in three different ways. Unless it's just to solidify, hey, you can't symbolize this one away. Because maybe you're going to say 42 months is really like 42 years. No, I'm telling you it's not only 42 months, but it's 1,260 days. It's a time, times, and half a time. Good luck trying to symbolize that. You know, that kind of thing. That's where I'm at. But... I'm just letting you know that ideas are out there of others, so you can do with what you want, but I think that's the same time period. But nonetheless, you are kept out of the serpent's reach here, it says in Revelation 12 when we get to it. You are protected during this three-and-a-half-year period. So, interesting. You're, you're kept out of the reach of the serpent. That's the question. All I know is, exegetically speaking, where else do you see seven years? You don't, except for Daniel 7. That's where we're getting, Daniel 7 and Revelation, that's where we're getting this time period from. But we have grown up in a society and a culture, all we have ever heard is we've got this seven-year period and we've got it so nice and neat blocked out, I just don't think it's that nice and neat. So... I know I'm not going to be able to give you guys answers completely, but I hope it's going to be enough for you to start thinking about things differently, and when things occur, you'll recognize it. Um, all I know is it seems here that the first three and a half years is the time of the two witnesses, which we're getting into. The question we can't answer is when do they come? When do they start? The second three and a half years is the Antichrist, the persecuting the saints, setting up an abomination that causes desolation, going after the saints. But what we read here in Revelation 12 is there's protection when he goes after them. We've already seen in Revelation, uh, in the, uh, chapter 6, the fifth seal, persecuted Christians. How long, O Lord, until... You avenge our blood. He says, a few, little longer until more die like you did for the sake of my name. We know there will be Christians who die. But we also know there will be a protection. This almost makes it sound here in Revelation 12 like the church. Anybody who's a real believer 
is out of reach of the serpent. Satan can't get to them. But the seals sound like, you know, some are going to die. Could it be two different things? Kind of makes sense that it very well could be. Especially if you think about the saints throughout. We have a tendency to read this only to the book of Revelation. Like we're special somehow. Us people living in the end times. We're the ones that this is all written about. Right? Well, what about people like, you know, all the Christians in the past who have been martyred for their faith? Could they be the ones in that fifth seal crying out at the altar saying, yeah, but there's going to be more of this and they're going to be joining you throughout all these centuries? It doesn't have to be just that period for those people up in, in heaven. So, again, I don't know. Um, anyway, let's uh, dive into these two witnesses a little bit more here, too. The Antichrist. This is uh, in Daniel 9. I said 7 here before. It's chapter 9, so I misspoke. The Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end, of the, end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So the Antichrist is going to, in the midst of the seven, set up an abomination that causes desolation. Jesus himself told us in Matthew 24, so... When you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand and flee to the hills. The preterists say that's exactly what happened. When Titus was coming, there were a lot of Messianic Jews that fled to the hills and were spared from that destruction. Again, I think that's just a type, not the actual fulfillment, because... The Antichrist wasn't the end that was decreed out for him. That means Titus is the Antichrist. It's done. It's over. That can't be. So again, it has to be a type, but that historical event is what you can kind of look for. Um... But this is, like I said, where we get that three and a half split. Now, you might be able to say that there's one other place you get the seven years, and that is from Daniel's 70 weeks. And I think that that would be legitimate because you had 69 weeks, and then there's this last week. And that last week is what everybody attaches this seven-year period to that is split in half. In Daniel 7, he says this. I guess I wasn't wrong. It was just, it's twice in Daniel. Daniel spoke of this period as a time when the Antichrist is going to come, saying, speak against the Most High. This is what the Antichrist will do. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints, try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. The strange thing is, here the saints are handed over to him. In Revelation 12, the saints are delivered from him for that same time period. Is there more than one? Or is it two separate sets of people? What? I told you I was going to muddy the waters. Like I said, I just think this idea that we have grown up with and we've made it so simple cannot be. But the court will sit, and remember we saw that in the beginning of Revelation, there was a courtroom being seated, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Satan's, the Antichrist power, gone forever. That seems to suggest this is at the very end. Well, in Revelation 11 here, this is just before the very end. It seems like 
the witnesses are going to pro prophesy for three and a half years. Then you got three and a half years of him going after the saints, and it's over. Satan will be put down forever, just like what Daniel 7 would say, which tends to make me think this is more chronological, and we are not seeing the seven-year period until maybe after the sixth trumpet. So, um, in Revelation 13, 5, the beast is given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies to exercise his authority for 42 months. Seems to be the same thing that Daniel is talking about here as well. Verse 3, where it said, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Who are these two witnesses? Zechariah 4, verse 11 through 14 says this, Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out gold and oil? He replied, do you know not, or do you not know who these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. The two witnesses seem to be the exact same people talked about here in Zechariah 4. <coughs> now, they are dressed in sackcloth. That usually is a message of repentance, you know, uh, like a John the Baptist in camel's hair and sackcloth. Um, we see that in Genesis 37, Nehemiah 9, Joel 1, John 3, and other places that sackcloth is used as a, a symbol of repentance. It seems to be that the message that these two witnesses are going to give is one of repentance. We know that John just saw an open book, an open scroll that's sour and sweet. That could be the same message that's given here. I don't know. But um, Zechariah is asking the same question that we ask today. Who are these two witnesses? Well, that's where I think things get really interesting. Look at this in Zechariah one more time here, where he says, who are these? He says, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord. But at the beginning, then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? So the lampstand, remember in your tabernacle, you got your menorah. There was one on the right and left, both sides of the menorah. That's where they are, on the side of the word, you might say. And he says again, what are these two olive branches? Well, look what Revelation 11 describes them as. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So they're trees, they're lampstands, but again, the lampstands in the tabernacle is a picture of the word of God. And they're giving the word of God. I don't know. He says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Do you remember Elijah when, uh, I think it was Ahab, had his, his men going after Elijah? Brings 50 guys out. Elijah's sitting up on a hill. Fire comes down because... They were, they were meaning him harm. Fire comes down, consumes all 50 men. Ahab thinks, well, that's not going to slow me down. Sends another 50. Same thing happens. Ahab says, I don't care. Not my life. Sends another 50. Well, this commander of the, the battalion or whatever it would be says, hey, listen, Elijah, stop. Before you burn me up, I ha have mercy on my life. And Elijah goes down with him. But what's interesting is, if anybody wanted to harm Elijah, how did they die there? Fire. Here, same thing. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. How long is their days of their prophecy? Three and a half years. Do you recall that Elijah 
stopped it for raining, from raining for three and a half years. Remember when Ahab was going and they had this whole thing, uh, the battle of you know, Baal on Mount Carmel? After all the 400 prophets of Baal had been killed, he went up on the hill and he was looking out towards the, the Mediterranean Sea and it was clear sky. And he prayed again and it was clear sky and he prayed again and he saw just a little bit of a cloud coming and he prayed again and then the cloud got bigger and he prayed again and it just starts pouring eventually. One of the reasons that Ahab was so ticked off at Elijah was because he was viewed as being responsible for it not raining for three and a half years. In a sense, he was. You're going to see the reason that these two witnesses are hated is because they're viewed as being responsible for the plagues that are coming on the earth. It's going to say that point blank here in Revelation. Same exact thing. So the same things Elijah does are the same thing one of these witnesses are going to do. Could it be Elijah? Verse 6, these have power, I guess, uh, 6b. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. That's interesting. Who did that? Moses turned the waters to blood, all kinds of plagues. Sounds to me like at least the things that they're doing fit Moses and Elijah. When Jesus is going up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who is it that comes to serve the Lord? Moses and Elijah. Now, there are some other views that are out there. One of them is Enoch. And really the only reason for that is because it says in Romans, it is appointed for man to die once, and then after that to face judgment. That you only die once. And so these people have not died. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind of fire. Enoch walked with God and was no more. So they say, but Moses died. So they say it must be Enoch and Elijah. But that is all based on the fact of not dying. I don't think that's a good argument for, uh, what about Lazarus? Lazarus died twice. Yeah, Moses and Elijah. Yeah. I was going to be nice. <laughs> no, that's right. I wasn't sleeping. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so I, I don't think that's a good argument. Now, I also have heard the argument, did Elijah really die? Did Enoch really die? It doesn't say that they didn't die. If the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once, that everybody's got to die, that maybe, you know, in the taking, that they did die, but just supernatural, you know, quick. Elijah goes up and, you know, we, we don't know. My point is, is I think the argument that the people, the two witnesses have to be people who haven't died isn't a strong one. I would say what is more strong is what they do and the fact that we see them appearing to, Moses, or, uh, to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the argument that is used to kind of use the same support. When Moses died, and we will be talking about that, when Moses died, God buried him. And even more so, nobody knew where he was buried. And even more so, there was somebody who knew besides God where he was buried. Well, it seems to be. Maybe I shouldn't put it that way. But there was somebody who wanted his body. And that's the devil. Why did the devil want Moses' body? How do we know the devil wanted Moses' body? It says that in Jude. It says very clearly that you do not bring a slanderous accusation against angels or whatnot, because even the archangel Michael did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against 
the devil when he was arguing over Moses' body? Jude 9. So, Moses seems to have a very important thing there. There's also a lot of just interesting facts about this. Moses, the guy that, the most humble man that ever lived, the most Christ-like guy that you can ever see. I mean, there's only one that came greater than Moses. And we see he was not allowed to enter into the promised land. Or was he? Who appears on the Mount of Transfiguration in the promised land? Moses. Moses and Elijah. God had earlier promised him that he was going to give him the promised land. Then he gets there. You know, you can't have it yet. But he's going to get it. So there's all of these things that are interesting. The other thing is the two witnesses. What were the two witnesses of Jesus? When he says... On the road to Emmaus, what was he going to witness to uh, his character, his messiahship, his divinity? What did he use to do that with? Law and the prophets. Who's the law known for? Moses. Who are the prophets? Elijah. You have both the prophets and the law being represented here in the two witnesses. So I think those are some more powerful arguments against Enoch, in my opinion. There throughout centuries have been all kinds of views to Jews and Christians, Ephraim and Judah, uh, Caleb and Joshua. I mean, you name it. I just don't see any of them. But I do see one biblical thing that says, I know who one of them is for sure. Malachi. He says, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. We knew Elijah was coming. The disciples knew Elijah was coming. Because when they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, in Matthew 17, it says, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? The teachers of the law were teaching that. Well, because of that verse in Malachi. Jesus answers, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. Is that future tense or past tense? Future. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. Future or past? Past. Dual prophecy here again. They did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished, in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So, I grew up in a church who said one of these two witnesses is John the Baptist. Because Jesus said it was John the Baptist. Well, kind of but not fully. Not only that, but if you recall, when the Pharisees came out to, in John, they come out to John the Baptist, and they say, who are you? Who, what do you say about yourself? Who are you? Where did you come from? And he said, are you Elijah? I am not. Those were John the Baptist's words. He denied being Elijah. What Jesus is saying here is, yes, I tell you, Elijah, the real one, is coming back. But I tell you, he came in the spirit of John the Baptist as well, because John the Baptist came in a ministry of repentance. Crying out, dressed in sackcloth and ashes, saying, listen, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That kind of sounds like the message then that the two witnesses are going to do. They're coming dressed in sackcloth. They're going to be giving a message of repentance. Repent, the kingdom of heaven, it is truly at hand. Like even in your time, your reckoning of time. So I think that John the Baptist simply came in the spirit of that message. And so I would say Moses and Elijah, I'm pretty firm on, on that. I'm not going to be all upset if somebody disagrees, but... I, in my mind, don't have any doubt we're dealing with Moses and Elijah here. Um, especially, to me, the strongest argument being that they're the ones appearing at the Mount of Transfiguration serving him. They're the two olive trees that serve the word of God, stand on the right and left of the lampstand, the menorah, the light of the world, that kind of thing. 
this is going to get into some of the things that I already talked about, but I think I'm going to stop here for tonight. Next week, we'll get into a little bit more of uh, Jude and those kinds of things. So we'll continue with these two witnesses and see how they're to be killed and the results of all of that. But I think I've given you enough to chew on and ponder tonight to make you spin. So we'll call that good. All right, Heavenly Father, thank you for just your word. And I pray that you do give us understanding. Lord, I just trust and and believe in the promises of what you told Daniel that, you know, to go your way, Daniel, until the end, that things are sealed up until the time of the end, but many will go here and there to increase knowledge, but the end has not yet come. That the wicked will continue to be wicked, and none of the wicked will understand, but the righteous, they will understand. And so we just trust that as things unfold, that we know your word well enough to recognize it that we will just exegetically live our lives and and think about these things rather than doing what we hope for or want or just because we've heard it. But that we would seek and, and dive into your word and that we would be able to fellowship with you because we're in that holy place. We're in prayer and we're in communion and we're in your word. We're seeking your presence. And so may you just do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.